Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today's episode is a little bit different. I reached out to John Turner, who's a biographer of Brigham Young, and asked him if he'd be willing to come on the show because I thought it would be fun and interesting to get an outside perspective, talk to someone who's really an expert and can get into some of the details about his life. In this conversation, we talk a lot of big picture about Brigham Young's impact and legacy. And of course, we also talk about some of those attributes that made him so special. What made Brigham Young Brigham Young? What made him such a great leader and able to hold this group of people together and establish such an interesting and dynamic legacy. So I hope it's interesting to you. To be honest, it's a little bit context heavy. If you don't know anything about Brigham Young other than what you've heard in the podcast, it might be a little tough to follow, but I don't know. Maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. Uh, if you are one of those people who doesn't have a lot of context and you listen to this, let me know what you think and if you're able to follow it and if this is an enjoyable episode to you. I might do more of this kind of stuff in the future, which is just an episode at the end with a biographer to give a, a little bit of a summary and an overview and add a little bit of extra color and context. This one was a lot of fun for me. And so obviously a big thank you to John Turner for coming on the show. It was, it was very kind of him to uh, give his time so freely and graciously. So um, yeah, please enjoy this interview with John Turner. Great. I'm here with uh, Dr. John Turner. So uh, I've done this series on Brigham Young. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm an enthusiast. I like learning about him, but I thought uh, it'd be nice to talk to an expert who could set me straight and uh, really, really tell me what's what and what happened. My, my first question is, is about the impact of Brigham Young. At first glance, you think, okay, wow, this is someone who had a, a massive impact on the world and on the United States. Someone who led tens of thousands of people across the continental United States, settled the Intermountain West, you know, Utah, Idaho, many parts of Arizona, Wyoming, into Canada, into Mexico, you know, religious impact. But but then you start thinking about it another way and you say, okay, well, people who were not Mormons didn't have that much trouble settling Colorado, Washington, Oregon. So my question is really... Let's try and do a counterfactual in which Brigham Young doesn't lead the church. Maybe Heber Kimball does or something like that. How different would things be really? That is a great question. So I think the first thing I would say, and it maybe it doesn't point to long-term difference, but at least for a good stretch of time, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they simply had a different approach to settling the West than most other Americans. Most other Americans wanted to move to, you know, somewhere, say the Great Basin, extract resources from it and get out. And, or they might have settled on parts of the plains where they would be many miles from their neighbors, you know, sort of living in isolation. The Mormons under Brigham Young's leadership, they just had a totally different model. They built these tight-knit communities in which, you know, people lived near each other and had their lives organized to at least some extent around uh, church activity. And then the string of settlements that sort of, as you suggested in your question, extended north from, you know, the Great Salt Lake up into Idaho, extended south and southwest uh, as far as San Bernardino, 
So, I mean, just the, the shape, you know, the, the landscape that you would drive through today would look a lot different if other Americans had settled the Great Basin. And, you know, you might not notice that as much today if you're driving through the sprawl around Provo and Orem or up in Salt Lake. But just that predictable string of settlements, of people coming from the long haul, for the long haul, of people showing up from places like Wales and Scandinavia. Certainly in the 19th century, the character of these places was really different than it would have been without Brigham Young and his people. One of the other questions, I guess I have kind of the same question, but from a religious perspective, when I look at it, you look essentially at Sidney Rigdon and the movement he led, and it fairly quickly, I almost think of it as like gravitational pull, right? And it got pulled sort of and folded back into pretty mainstream Protestant Christianity. Uh, you look at the uh, Reformed Church of Jesus Christ of, of Latter-day, Latter-day Saints, and it, it, the process took longer. It was definitely uh, stayed distinct for longer, but it seems to be undergoing a similar transformation. Do you think... You know, you know, it's not just Brigham Young who wanted to take this different approach. Parley Pratt, Heber Kimball, the other apostles very much were on board with this approach. So is Brigham like a singular personality that is responsible for the Church of Jesus Christ kind of Latter-day Saints remaining distinct from Protestant Christianity? Or are there others who could have led it down the road it has gone down? That's a great question as well. So first of all, you know, I think a lot of people, if they didn't know the details of the history, they would presume that Brigham Young became Joseph Smith's primary successor. You mentioned some of the other directions that different people went, but his primary successor because of just his innate qualities as a leader or um, the nature of his bid for leadership after Joseph Smith's death. But a lot of it was happenstance. He was two weeks older than Heber C. Kimball, which is why he was president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So, you know, it's sort of sheer circumstance or happenstance that to a certain extent that he ends up as the one in charge. I think the fact that Young or Kimball or Woodruff or Parley Pratt, that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles under Brigham's leadership, under their leadership, that it was they who took the saints... Uh, across the plains, over the mountains, into the Great Basin. Certainly, it had a huge impact on the trajectory of the churches and the Utah Territory's relationship with the U.S. government over the course of the 19th century. You know, other potential leaders, certainly Rigdon or uh, the reorganization that began in the 1860s, they would not have had the same, you know, hostile, mutually hostile relationship with the U.S. government. It's partly because Brigham Young and the other apostles were committed to the principle of plural marriage, polygamy, that had a great deal to do with it, but also the nature of government in the Utah Territory. It's always interesting to me to read your book and, and read some other history of the time, which is, um, on the one hand, the aggressions of, of the U.S. government seem rather ridiculous to me. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, the church was ambivalent. Uh, there was a reason that they were going so far out, and it was kind of to get beyond the reach of the U.S. government. And for all their uh, 
for all of the what I think is overblown blustering about uh, the Latter-day Saints being violent or uh, wishing harm on the United States, uh, it was a theocracy. And that complaint on a certain level was accurate, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, sure. So there's a lot to unpack there. So this is a relationship that develops over time and before Brigham Young is in charge. So, you know, under Joseph Smith's leadership, the saints are uh, expelled from Missouri at the pain of extermination. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, other church leaders, church members more generally, they're really embittered that no one will grant them redress for what they have repeatedly suffered in Missouri. They've lost their property. They've been beaten up. Their women have been raped. And neither the state government of Missouri or Congress or the president, nobody's doing anything to help them. And then the cycle, you know, not it's not an exact similarity, but the cycle essentially repeats in Illinois. And... Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram are murdered. No one ultimately is brought to justice for those murders. And so, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of estrangement from uh, the U.S. government. And Young is very explicit. You know, he wants to lead the church to a place where there aren't other white people and so that they can govern themselves. And... So then going forward, of course, there's a lot of mutual hostility and a lot of accusations thrown around on both sides. And the U.S. government objects to the fact that uh, the Utah Territory is essentially run as a theocracy. And when the U.S. government intervenes, Young and his many of his people are convinced that uh, other Americans are coming to mob them and kill them. And so there's just a tremendous amount of suspicion, hostility, you know, tension, really, until, until and a little bit beyond the abandonment of plural marriage in Utah statehood. This is the, this is the last counterfactual I'm going to ask you, I promise. But you mentioned Hiram. And, and the last kind of counterfactual I wanted to ask you was, Hiram is an interesting character in that he seems naturally more conservative, small C conservative. And yet he did practice plural marriage. Uh, Joseph kind of brought him into the inner circle carefully and after the apostles, but did bring him in. And I, he was the obvious successor if he hadn't died, if Joseph Smith had died and he had not. Do you have a feel for what direction the church would have gone if Hiram had survived? So, you know, historians generally don't like counterfactuals, but I'm happy <laughs> to entertain them anyway. You, like <laughs> you, know, I, you know, one thing that occurs to me that, you know, I've, I've thought a little bit about Hiram recently because I've been doing some additional research and thinking about Joseph Smith. And it's noteworthy to me that, you know, in June of 1844, when Joseph convenes the Nauvoo City Council to respond to the publication of the Nauvoo Expositor, which is this dissident newspaper, which is sharply critical of Joseph's leadership. Hiram is super forceful. You know, he calls for the press to be scattered and burned in the street. And so he certainly matches his brother's sort of fiery, forceful response maybe reckless response at that time. 
And so I agree that in a general sense, Hiram might seem like a bit more of a cautious individual than, say, Joseph or Brigham. I think both he and Brigham had a bit in common in that, you know, they might be a bit slower to commit to something. So Brigham took his time examining the Book of Mormon before converting and being baptized, and at least took a little bit of time contemplating plural marriage. But both of them, you know, once they're in, they're sort of all in. And so I'm sure in the finer points, leadership might have been different. But in terms of broad trajectory, I see I see a lot of similarity. Okay, done with the counterfactuals, I promise. W- one of the things that I loved about your book, and maybe I hadn't realized as much, is the depth of the relationship between Brigham Young and Heber Kimball, which I found very touching. I guess he's someone who's considered, I guess, more of a minor player uh, in the in the early Latter-day Saint movement. Uh, although I think I, I, again, was struck reading your book that he, he definitely played a, a larger role than than I had previously given him credit for. Is there anyone else like that that is generally regarded as a minor player that in your research you have have discovered that maybe they uh, are, are a larger character? That is a great question. I mean, Heber Kimball is a good example, and I think he you know, he's partly overlooked because he's a bit less of a force by the time they get to Utah and the years pass. I think he doesn't find himself, you know, quite as much in the inner circle uh, eventually. And, you know, maybe feels a little bit adrift because of that. Because another figure that I would say, I don't know if overlooked is the right term, but someone else who comes to mind is William Clayton, who's a confidant, scribe, and clerk for Joseph Smith, and is very close to events as they unfold in 1843-1844 in Nauvoo, and then also really doesn't find himself in Brigham Young's inner circle once they leave Nauvoo, and you know, perhaps gets a bit less recognition because of that. William W. Phelps is another good example of someone who's very close to Joseph um, at different points during Joseph Smith's life, but is also a bit on the outs, partly because of his own, I think, some of his own personal shortcomings once once they reach Utah. There, there are this sort of interesting cadre of people who become disaffected and then come back on their way to Utah. And um, their relationship is is very interesting because like W.W. Phelps, it's people who very much had been in Joseph Smith's inner circle, had been very close to him. And they they do still hold this almost like talismanic energy that people find them really important symbolically, but have no actual control once they get to Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Phelps also points to a bit of a difference in personality and leadership between Joseph and Brigham. So Phelps is disaffected in Missouri, along with Orson Hyde. And Joseph Smith more or less, you know, welcomes them back into the fold. By the time that Joseph Smith is running for president in 1844, writing political figures the previous year, you know, Phelps is 
very important. You know, he does a lot of writing for Joseph Smith. He's essentially Smith's ghostwriter much of the time. And, you know, so that, you know, they could really patch things up. I think Brigham, if someone betrayed him, he might let him back into the fold, but he wouldn't let him forget it. He was, he was a little bit more, it's just a little bit more careful. Yeah, that's right. And, and was kind of careful to keep them out of positions of, of authority. Whereas Joseph Smith did not. Is there anything else that you would say? There's this good quote that you highlight where uh, Brigham Young says uh, something about Joseph's idea of how to run things in temporal matters was different from how I might do it. And it's like the only sentence he ever says that even approaches anything like criticism of of Joseph Smith because he, he adored him so much. Can you speak a little more to the difference in leadership styles between Joseph and Brigham? Well, another time where he sort of criticizes Joseph is he says that, you know, Joseph was way too easy on dissent within the church. And, you know, he's saying this being scarred by the wake of what has happened in Nauvoo, which I think was simply deeply traumatic uh, for Brigham Young both Joseph and Hiram's murders, but also then living under the threat of the community's collapse or his own possible assassination. And so he wants to take a much harsher stance against dissent, which he sees as a grave danger to the church's survival. So that's also, you know, I think is a bit of a, of a difference in approach. I, I think so, oftentimes people, you know, other people have, of course, noticed that and talked about it, but I do think it has to be put in the context of what's happened in Missouri and Nauvoo. And Brigham Young is simply determined that's not going to happen again. You've brought something up that's an interesting dichotomy to me that I had a, a little bit of trouble figuring out about Brigham Young, which is, so you start your book with Brigham at the St. George Temple dedication, right? And he plows his hickory cane into the into the pulpit and it gets stuck there. And it's the kind of this image of like, even at, towards the very end of his life, he's this very powerful, you mentioned that he had no trouble giving the church a tongue lashing, right? And uh, he could do that in private as well. Could be almost belligerent. At the same token, you show him, you know, probably this where this comes most powerfully to me is when he's in England and he has to manage the other apostles and he's just masterful at, he's almost a diplomat. He's really good at kind of massaging people's personalities and so it's like, how do you square these two things? This, the, on the one hand, he can be f fiercely critical and uh, almost like a bull in a china shop. And on the other hand, he can be extremely diplomatic and really making sure to accommodate other people's feelings as he goes forward. Well, I suppose the simple answer would be that he would do what he thought the particular moment required. Now, I do think sometimes he did simply treat people with cruelty when it totally was not required. But, you know, the examples that you bring up are, are good ones. So when he, I think people for, forget because they typically 
think of Joseph as the spiritual leader and Brigham as the organizer, that that is too stark of a contrast. I mean, Brigham Young would not have been able to successfully lead the church upon Joseph's death if large numbers of the saints did not have a strong sense of spiritual loyalty to him. A lot of that was due to his leadership during the mission of the Twelve to England. Brigham, what you know, he certainly was not responsible even for the greatest number of conversions or baptisms there, but thousands of those English saints who came to Nauvoo, you know, understood him as a significant spiritual leader in their lives. And, you know, I think a lot of those bonds of spiritual loyalty, you know, they, they persisted over the years. And Brigham sometimes, you know, renewed them through his visits to different communities in the Utah Territory. And, you know, there, there were other times where, he, like you said, he could simply be belligerent. You know, there's that time in the 1850s that's become known as the Mormon Reformation, where he concluded that, you know, too many people were not living up to the mark, too many people were unenthusiastic about plural marriage in particular, people needed to repent. And I think, you know, he, he really created a bit of a, you know, a bit of spiritual chaos turmoil uh, among his people at that time. So I'm not suggesting he all, he, you know, he, he always did what was right for the moment, but he certainly could use very different styles and techniques of leadership. One of the, uh, it's interesting. So I, uh, I am a Latter-day Saint. And so my picture of Brigham Young growing up very much came from the church and how he was portrayed. And I think very much it is portrayed that way within the church that Joseph Smith was the spiritual leader and Brigham Young was the temporal leader in part because I think on some level, the church wants to downplay some of his more spiritual contributions, which the church has, has largely moved away from, I, I guess. And you're not, you know, a, a Mormon studies guy or an expert on the current church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. But do you think that what I just said, do you think that's a fair assessment that the church has moved away from many of his doctrinal contributions? Well, sure. And I, I think that is true. And I'd also think, I also think that it's, it has become much easier for Latter-day Saints to, if they're looking at parts of the 19th century that they might not feel so comfortable about today, it's sort of, in a way, it's easier to blame Brigham Young than it is to bring, blame the founding prophet. Mm -hmm. So he's a bit of a safer target, I think, for, <laughs> for criticism. You know, in terms of, yeah, doctrines that the church has moved away from. So Brigham Young identified Adam as humanity's God. The church, the first presidency explicitly, you know, rejected that viewpoint in the early 1900s. You know, we could look at other examples like blood atonement that Brigham certainly preached. I don't necessarily think the I don't necessarily think the idea originated with him, but he preached it forcefully. And of course, the 
the church utterly repudiates that doctrine today. Well, you know, along those lines, one other thing that I was struck by, so you talk about plural marriage, and one of the things is this, with plural marriage, is this idea that you get with Brigham Young that's sort of doctrinal, but sort of just, I guess, um, what he conveys, which is essentially um, that this idea of stewardship and that the the greater your and dominion kind of and the greater your dominion uh, that's kind of what exaltation is that's what godhood is and so the more wives you have that is sort of increasing your your family your dominion and that that is sort of progressing uh towards godhood now the church has obviously moved away from that on a measurement of wives basis but i think has moved away from it generally this idea that uh, you're supposed to be a patriarch sort of in the style of an Old Testament patriarch, right? And increasing your your dominion. And that that is a sign of of moving forward in the gospel. Did did I first of all, did I do you do you think that's an accurate summation of of kind of how he viewed viewed that? So how Brigham Young viewed the connection between plural marriage and exaltation? Yeah. And that that idea of of dominion generally, that, that sort of expanding dominion was was advancing towards godhood. Well, I, I do think that's the case. I tend to think that it's almost certainly the explanation for why Joseph Smith also is sealed to so many women. Because, you know, the mere existence of a command to marry plurally doesn't explain being sealed to 30 or so. And you can find that, you know, explicit connection between number of wives, size of family, and, you know, size of one's exalted kingdom. I think you can, you know, you can find it among some of Brigham's contemporaries as well. I think it might have been Orson Hyde or John Taylor, I forget who, you know, sort of even published a chart along those lines. So, yeah, I, I think that, I think it, I think that that was the case. I think it was, you know, I, I'm not a Latter-day Saint, so of course I think it's problematic theologically, but I think also in practical terms, that was very, it created a lot of problems in the early Utah Territory. You know, if, if, if the idea is to get as many as you can, as one of Joseph Smith's scribes put it, that doesn't leave enough to go around. Right. And you, and you reach this crisis point where, uh, yes, Wilford Woodruff moves the church away from plural marriage for explicitly political reasons, right? So, but, but also because logistically it wasn't feasible anymore. There just were not enough women. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I tend to see 19th century uh, plural marriage as mostly, mostly a mess, Um you know, theologically and practically. Not that you can't find examples of harmony within certain families, among certain wives within within a household, and the cherishing of ancestors who lived out this principle faithfully. But I think at the end of the day, it, it pretty much was a mess. Uh, you know, I, I guess this isn't really a question, it's just my, my personal viewpoint, which is, on the one hand, as a Latter-day Saint, I, I can't imagine how life would be if we had tried to preserve 
some of these things in the intervening 150 years. On the other hand, as just sort of a fan of interesting things happen in history, it's like this fascinating thing that someone's trying to create an alternate civilizational model. And as it sort of falls back into the gravitational mass of America in the early 20th century, I mourn it a little bit of, oh, that, that's a little bit of a shame to see this unique thing uh, become yeah. like the rest of the U.S. Well, and as, for, as far as um, fodder for historians, it's just fascinating, of course. And, you know, I think also for as much of a mess as it was, the, you know, Brigham Young and other Latter-day Saint leaders, they made some sharp and accurate critiques of American society at the time. You know, they would often say, well, you know, one of um, Parley Pratt's wives, she ran away from an alcoholic and abusive husband uh, who eventually tracked Pratt down and, and killed him. But, the, you know, the saints would say, you know, why should a woman remain trapped in that circumstance when she could instead have a righteous husband? And why are the, there are these thousands of prostitutes in eastern cities? You know, it's not as if, it's not as if marriage was necessarily working out well for everybody else in 19th century America. Um, and sometimes the the Latter-day Saints made some very incisive critiques of the shortcomings of American society more generally. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I want to move a little bit. I started kind of big picture uh, asking these very heady questions. I want to ask you about a few details. Uh, one I, I told you about in advance, which is just, uh, I don't know if it's a discrepancy or as much as maybe a difference in tone between you and the, the other most famous biographer, of, uh, well, probably the most famous biographer of Brigham Young is a man named Leonard Arrington. I guess the impression that I got in his book was of uh, a relatively successful entrepreneur, Brigham Young, coming up, making headway, and then, you know, obviously having the leadership role that he did within uh, the, the Latter-day Saint Church, who may, maybe made one bad investment in this farm that led him to be in debt. The impression I got more from you was of someone who was kind of perennially in debt and kind of struggling to keep up, but then flourished within the the structure of the Latter-day Saint Church. Is there a, a difference there, or am I reading too much into it between you and Arrington? Well, Ben, I can't remember what Leonard Arrington specifically <laughs> said about that, but I did glance at what I said about that before this interview. And I would say the truth the truth sounds somewhere in between sort of entrepreneur craftsman who is doing okay versus you know the specter of poverty so i mean i think brigham young brigham young does okay as a craftsman and you know he does a lot of different things so you know he can make furniture he can do windows which is something he ends up doing in kirtland you know, he moves around a lot. You know, he references, you know, a job in Auburn, which is, you know, by today's standards, a couple of hours east of where he was living in the Rochester area. He, you know, so he's sort of peripatetic, to use a fancy word. You know, he moves around a lot. He's not, it's not super stable. He does have this debt that you mentioned, 
um, about the time of his conversion. You know, his first wife dies very sadly, not too many years into their marriage. I don't. I just don't have the impression that at the age of thirty, he he was a man on the up. You know, he was sort of doing okay and struggling along. And I see it as most likely he would have continued to do so. Now, the fact that he's sort of on the margins, he's this hardworking guy. He's used to deprivation. You know, his family of origin was also really difficult. He is, like a lot of early converts, he's really well-suited for life as an early Mormon elder. He's happy to hit the road and walk around the Northeast and Canada um, and have his feet hurt or bloody or muddy and, you know, do whatever it takes in this new capacity. And, you know, it's not as if there isn't a lot of, you know, poverty and deprivation for quite a few years to come. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, I, I, I don't think he was an entrepreneur who was going to really make it in terms of being comfortable and successful if he hadn't joined the church. I, don't, I just don't see a real trajectory there. It's interesting to me because once he gets near leadership, he seems irrepressible almost is a word I would use. And you can see that in Missouri where he's sort of semi-officially deputized. Joseph Smith can't give really great instructions because he's in, in jail, in Liberty Jail. But he basically just says, hey, whoever's the senior apostle, can you kind of make sure <laughs> that stuff runs okay? And Brigham just like runs with that, right? He, he, he seems so anxious for leadership, which is so funny because he, he shows no real anxiety for leadership in the previous 30-whatever years of his life. I just found odd. Yeah. And, you know, there aren't a lot of great firsthand contemporaneous sources for how he organizes the exodus from Missouri. There's a few, but it is this interesting moment. Like you said, again, it's happenstance. He's a couple of weeks older than Heber Kimball, so he ends up in charge when other people have fallen by the by the wayside, really. And so he does, he does show does show a talent for organizing and working with people both there and and in England, which, as you say, it's, it's interesting. He hasn't really been in that position previously. I do think he had a lot of spiritual fire and force. You know, I think you can... You can see that at scattered in scattered records in the 1830s, and you can certainly see it then at winter quarters, where he reintroduces the idea. Well, he introduces the idea of reconstituting a first presidency, which hadn't been done in the immediate wake of Joseph Smith's death, and there's a lot of opposition, and he's able to over it with sort of a combination of argumentation, belligerence, and spiritual fire. You know, he there. You know, he's there. The records of him just shouting Hosanna during that meeting, and it's 
it's something else, I think. You know, the the words on the page that the clerk is writing down, you know they're not doing it justice. Uh, I would have loved to have been, I think they were in a room and not outside, you know, either in the room or the grove where it happened. It's one of the things I actually felt when reading your book is just the tragedy of not always having a better firsthand accounts of some of these speeches. So for example, during the succession crisis with Sidney Rigdon, we have some clips and quotes of what Brigham said, but we don't have uh, uh, the full speech. And um, it just made me sad because some of those quotes, uh, I think you you say that he uh, essentially, um, Sidney Rigdon says, I'm going to be the guardian of the church, right? Um, And Brigham says, "Do you want do you want a nurse and a bottle washer, uh, or do you, or do you want a prophet?" And uh, yeah. so, so the, what we do have, just um, some of these speeches seems like they'd be not just spiritually powerful, but like kind of cracking good fun. Uh, yeah, and, and we miss out on some of that. Yeah, no, Brigham, he, you know, he did have that raw sense of humor, and it wasn't polished and sophisticated and. He's famous for his salty language, which I won't replicate on your surely family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah, but he was really funny, and you know, I think Joseph Joseph could be as well, and he was certainly mirthful in a, in a way. They both they both could be mirthful and really sociable. Um, Joseph, I think, was most of the time, and. You know, he would like to wrestle. You know, if he was in a town, he'd wrestle the strongest person there. And, you know, he'd certainly stay up late. But Brigham Young would, too. He'd be, you know, he'd be up late dancing and socializing in the Nauvoo Temple or in winter quarters. And, you know, I think I think he, he liked that. He, he liked that as well. And I'm sure that I'm sure it was endearing endearing to people. One of the other details I wanted to ask about is something that I'll just say we don't know, which is so, uh, well, we do know a lot about the logistics of plural marriage. And in some ways, Brigham Young was a special case. Um, His family really did not resemble many others just because of the sheer size of it. Obviously, one thing people always wonder about is the logistics of sexual Congress within a family of that size. I know, uh, I've heard you say before, like we just simply don't know. That is not something they were forthcoming about. Uh, You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that's something we know a lot about, but something we do know more about what I was hoping you could speak to is just, you know, when he's got 50 something children, what was the relationship of, of a child to Brigham Young? Was it, was it a normal parent child relationship? What, what did that look like? You know, it's actually, I feel more comfortable talking about many of the marriages than I do about the father children relationships because I feel like we actually know more about many of those marriages. In some cases they're rather well documented, you know, letters from wives especially in the 1840s and 1850s. You know, we do know something about the relationship with some of the children, such as, you know, Brigham Young Jr. There's some very poignant letters, a couple of poignant letters from Brigham to his children 
You know, there's one where he's urging a son to come back from the East Coast, and he he writes it in his own hand, which is really unusual uh, for him. He usually has people do his writing for him. And there are definitely a lot of sources that point to, you know, the family meetings he had with regularity for prayer and and probably for, for other purposes. But those aren't meetings for which we have minutes, unlike many church meetings. So I think, I think we don't know. He, I mean, he clearly didn't have close relationships with most of his children, just as he didn't maintain close relationships, really, with most of his wives. I, I guess I still just, what does that mean? I, not, you know, especially as a wife, he doesn't have a very close relationship with her. I imagine, and, and obviously some of them he did, right? Some of his wives were, were closer than others. And there is some, you know, so one of the things talked about in my family, I, I'm a, a descendant of Brigham Young, and uh, my, the woman through whom I'm descended, Emmeline Free, was his favorite for a while and then sort of fell out of favor. And it's interesting, to, it almost sounds like a high school, the way that some of these women are gossiping about each other and some of these women are so happy to see Emmeline, you know, fall from fall from grace to say, oh, you, you were lording it over us. You thought you were so right. special. Look at you now. But it's interesting right. to see that. I guess some of the dynamics are just what you see played out in other places now in a, in a big family context. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think Brigham was also, in this case, fairly practical. You know, if a wife was really disaffected or didn't want to live in the household, he would get her a house elsewhere. You know, maybe maybe in Provo, maybe uh, at his farm. And so I think he knew this wasn't a one-size-fits-all situation. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, for somebody with 55 wives, you know, he granted divorces to eight of them. Some of them simply remained in the East after they were sealed to him and maybe never even envisioned being part of his household. So there's, you know, there is, there is a sheer variety of circumstance. There are some who marry him. Augusta Adams is probably the most prominent example. They marry him and they realize that instead of being a queen, you know, they are one of many and maybe not one of the favored and they spend years grousing about it in letters. And, uh, you know, in that case which I think is really a delicious detail. Brigham Young agrees for Augusta to be sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity, which I, I sort of think he's thinking, well, at least I don't have to spend eternity with her. We'll, we'll give her to Joseph. So, you know, eminently practical. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, to, to wrap up, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry, this is a little bit more of a vague question, but it's just, what do you see as the essential attributes of Brigham Young? What was it about him that made his personality so singular that made him such a a strong leader? So I think the first thing, and it wouldn't make him a strong leader if it weren't combined with the other things, is there is that spiritual fire that is there. Um, from the moment that he is baptized into the church, probably even be before that. Um, you know, he's 
among the early Latter-day Saints who speak in tongues. He is comfortable with that sort of spiritual ecstasy. It doesn't burn quite as bright or as often later in his life, but I think at the core, you know, he, he did have that spiritual fire. And then I would say it's his combination of determination and flexibility that, that I mentioned earlier. You know, he, he might introduce an idea um, such as Adam as humanity's God. And when people opposed it, he sort of shelved it for a while and he brings it back toward the end of his life. Or he introduces, the, you know, he clearly has this idea of unity and economic cooperation. That's maybe the most famous example is, is the United Order sort of this attempt at communitarianism in the 1870s. Well, Brigham has all sorts of setbacks when he tries to introduce that sort of economic unity, and he has to pull back from a lot of initiatives. At the same time, though, you know, his, his fierce determination along those lines, um, the details might not always work out, but he very much stitches together his people with a sense of, of common purpose and solidarity against outside threats. So I think in, in those respects, you know, that, that combination serves him, serves him really well. He's fiercely determined, but he's also willing to be nimble when circumstances necessitate it. And I think that also has a lot to do with the fact that he's successful as a leader for a long period of time. And he leads, he leads the church for 33 years after Joseph Smith's death through all sorts of different circumstances, different political threats, different times of dissent within the church, the advent of the Transcontinental Railroad and the influx of non-Mormons to the Utah Territory. And if he didn't have that flexibility he wouldn't have been able to succeed for as long as he did. The The podcast is called How to Take Over the World. And the idea is that people are supposed to learn something from the lives of these people. Brigham Young comes along at an interesting time uh, in that in the 19th century, it's not just Mormonism and the, the, the various offshoots of that that come about, but you also have Seventh-day Adventism, you have all these sort of different branches. You have all these restorationist churches, you have Jehovah's witness. You've, you've got a, a lot. It's this like fertile ground, I guess, for new Christian sects and religions popping up in the United States. Is anything like that going to happen again? And is there ever going to be a chance for another Brigham Young to come along of, uh, do you think there will ever be another religious leader of that significance in the United States? Well, that is a fun question. You know, I still, I, I still think there's a tremendous. I mean, there's just still a tremendous amount of diversity and ferment within American religion. I, you know, one thing that comes to mind, and this doesn't d directly answer the question, but another characteristic of Brigham Young that I think might surprise people is he was really curious. A lot of early Latter Day Saints were. 
when they were roaming around the United States on missions or in England, they didn't have a completely single-minded focus on evangelism and proselytizing. They would attend the meetings of other religious societies, not only to make their own case, but just to see what was out there. And Brigham notes doing that on a number of occasions, and you can find that in other uh, missionary journals from the early 1840s as well. So he, he was someone who was really curious about what was going on in his world and took the time to, to check things out. I think that's not necessarily what I would point to as what made him a great leader, but I think it's something that people wouldn't know about him. You know, I think there have been lots of powerful religious leaders in the United States uh, since then. You know, people like, you know, ranging from Martin Luther King to Billy Graham, you know, people who have touched uh, millions of lives um, and still do. We're never going to have the exact circumstances that uh, Brigham Young had, which gave him the opportunity to not just lead a church, but to attempt to establish what he understood as the kingdom of God in a very literal sense uh, on the earth. So in terms of those circumstances, you know, those, the, the, those opportunities just are not here in 21st century America. And, you know, so I think some of those singular characteristics of Brigham Young's life and leadership, they simply can't be replicated. I like your answer. On some ways, it's sad to me that, like, you're right. In some ways, that frontier is closed. But like you said, there's definitely um, successors to have large spiritual impact. And uh, it's it's the United States is still a, an interesting place, uh, religiously and spiritually. Uh, John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. The book is Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. Uh, I highly recommend it to everyone. Go pick yourself up a copy. Um before I actually read it, somehow I heard of it as the anti-Mormon biography of Brigham Young. Not accurate at all. Uh, it is neither anti-Mormon nor, uh, as you've mentioned, you're not a member of the faith. It's it's very fair, very even-handed, very interesting. I, I loved the, the perspective that you offered. So again, to the audience, I highly recommend you go pick up uh, John Turner's book. And is there anything else that you want from my audience, anywhere they should check you out or, or look at? Well, I think, you know, they should anticipate uh, in a couple of years, I'm working on a biography of Joseph Smith. So I have a prequel. I have a prequel in the works. Hey, terrific. Uh, but I, I don't have much to say about that now. But Joseph, you know, he lived a much shorter life than Brigham. But he's really difficult to, to, uh, to write about. So I've got my hands full. Well, I can't wait. Uh, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have you on again when, uh, when that comes out. But um, great. Thanks very much, John. Thanks. 